Well, good morning and greetings from Grace Community Church, the Masters University. Um, it's an honor to be here. Just, just so you understand, I, um, my outfit today, the suit is in honor of John MacArthur. The shoes are in honor of Scott Artavanis. <laughs> Uh, I actually forgot my dress shoes, so <laughs> I'm a little bit hip and cool today. By the way, I, I know that Marietta is not on the coast. Scott sent me a picture yesterday, said, Harry, preach away, and he was pictured in front of a glass wall with ocean behind him. So lest you think he's serving in some difficult space. He is uh, enjoying not only ministry, but great beauty. But uh, anyway, I'm grateful to be here today. I want to ask you to take your Bible and join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. It is a joy to be back um, this Memorial Day weekend. <clears throat> Last time I was with you, you were in a little theater. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a beautiful space, and this is as was reported. I have heard comments about Scott's pulpit, and uh, not, I've preached a lot of places. I've never preached in a place with a pulpit this size. No one is going to steal it. Um, you can certainly bang on it, but what I appreciate, there is no clock on it. I'm teasing. So, and nor do I see one. So, hopefully we will uh, honor the time frame today. Uh, listen, I have uh, enjoyed many Memorial Day weekends, barbecuing, softballing, um, camping, but last night I went rodeoing at the Seven Oaks Rodeo, which is a one-of-a-kind experience, and I'm so grateful to have been a part of that. I didn't read the fine print when I got married. I didn't know that I was marrying a girl who loved horses, and uh, we ended up uh, having a little farm in Alabama before we moved west, and, and uh, we had up to 10 horses at a time. And I, uh, people say, well, you must love horses. No, I love the girl who loves horses. Um, I love her, and she loves horses, but I enjoy being around them. I was super impressed last night with all the happenings and just the, the beauty of it, the excitement of it, the fun of it, the purpose of it. And the generosity displayed in it. Uh, love the, uh, the heartbeat for the gospel that the Muxlows have and that this church has, as evidenced with River of Life and other ministry outlets. I know Albania is on the uh, schedule. What a wonderful thing as a church to be committed to the Great Commission. That matters. Eternal things matter. And that's really the focus of my message this morning in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, contextually, is in the final stages of the life and ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. This is his last week. This is in the middle of the last week. This is after the triumphal entry. This is after the trashing of the temple. This is after the assault of the enemies on Christ. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. He's going to the Mount of Olives. He's been saying with certainty, I'm leaving. He's been saying with clarity, and I'm returning. What isn't clear is when I am returning. The timing is uncertain. 
The certainty, I'm going. The certainty, I'm returning. The uncertainty, when I'm returning. Certainly, chapter 25, this is what you need to be doing in light of that reality. What should you be doing while you are waiting? That's the context of Matthew chapter 25. Now, I do serve as the campus pastor of the Master's University. I've had the privilege of doing that these last three years. One of the great joys is to celebrate graduation with seniors who have worked hard and invested a lot and written papers and taken tests. And one of the great joys of seeing them walk and graduate is to share the the joy of their accomplishment, their achievement, their success. One of the great things that is often expressed is the joy of, for many of them, taking no more tests. One of the joys of graduation is, I'm done taking tests. I've succeeded with the last test I've taken, and I've had the privilege of enjoying the reward of that test. The cap will be thrown, the celebration will be enjoyed, the last test successfully accomplished. Now, I don't know what the most important test you have ever taken would be, nor would I know what or how you did as it relates to that important test. My hope is that you passed it. My hope is that you experienced what college graduates experience, joy over having accomplished successfully their last test. I don't know what the most important test you've taken and passed is, But if you've passed it, and if it was important, you would experience a kind of joy that, quite frankly, is hard to rival. But there is a coming test for every Christian, and the title of my message this morning is The Ultimate Test. A test that you cannot retake, and that you do not want to fail. I remember when I took my final test for my master's degree in New Testament, Greek and theology. I went to a professor's home who proctored that exam. It was out of the Gospel of Luke. The test was he would decide on what particular chapter of the Gospel of Luke I would translate from the original language. He would give me a clean, new, New Testament in Greek. He would tell me what chapter, and my final test was to translate a chapter out of the book of Luke. And if I could accomplish that successfully, I would be able to graduate with my master's degree in New Testament. I remember sitting at his table. I remember working through that chapter that he had given me. I remember finishing it. I remember handing it to him. I remember sitting quietly and anxiously as he read through it with the English Bible open as he looked at my work versus the English translation. And I'll never forget it, never forget it, these words. Congratulations, Harry. You successfully translated this chapter, and therefore you have successfully completed the test work necessary for your degree. Those were great words. I reached over and shook his hand. He shook mine. I walked out of his house quite dignified and grateful. I got my little Datsun 510, and it was You understand that? That's what you feel like when you successfully accomplish something that really, really matters. 
The passage before us is a test. It's a greater test than that. It has more impact than that. And the joy associated will be greater than that. It is the ultimate test. A test you cannot retake and a test that you cannot fail. Read with me Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. We're going to begin to read at verse 14. Chapter 25 is two parables. The question on the table is, when are you coming? Chapter 24 is, you won't know, but you'll have signals. There will be indicators that the time is near. There will be famines. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be false prophets. The birth pangs will come, but the time is its coming, but it's not here. Like the fig tree, there will be evidence that fruit will be born shortly, but no man knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son of God knows the day or the hour, but the Father. The exhortation, chapter 24, verse 42, therefore be on the alert. It's coming fast like lightning. You'll know the time is near, the season is at hand, but you're not going to know when the Son of Man is coming, when I'll be returning. Be ready. Be on the alert. That word means head up, eyes open, avoid a calamity. Know that it's imminent. Anticipate it. Be on the alert. And then two parables in chapter 25. What you should be doing while you're alert and waiting. Number one, there's spiritual preparation, internal preparation. Parable number one, beginning with chapter 25, 1 through 13, the kingdom of heaven is compared to virgins, bridesmaids, those who will have vessels, oil lamps. Those vessels, I believe, are symbolic of the human vessel, the oil in the lamp necessary to be prepared for the returning of the bridegroom when he comes back with his bride is the oil in the lamp symbolic of the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. You need to have adequate inward resource, the Holy Spirit, the work of internal spiritual preparation, so that you're prepared, so that when the bridegroom comes, you're ready. You're spiritually ready. Otherwise, the door will be closed to the wedding feast. You will not be allowed to get in. This is the life. It will soon be passed when internal spiritual preparations are necessary for return or in preparation for the return of the Lord. Internal spiritual preparations. That's parable number one. Our focus today is parable number two. So read with me, not internal spiritual preparation, but external practical action. Verse 14, for it, that's a reference to what is stated in verse 1 of chapter 25, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to it, the kingdom of heaven and its coming, because that's the contextual force, for it, the coming of the kingdom, is just like a man. Now, this is a parable explaining what you're to be doing while you're waiting. It will be just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. 
But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter in to the joy of your master. The one also had received the two talents, came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You, have, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Verse 30, and cast out the worthless slave. Into the outer darkness, in that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When are you coming? You don't know. Signals will be evident, but the time is not known. Be ready. Be ready internally, spiritually. Be ready practically acting with a stewardship of responsibility. Matthew chapter 25 is about the ultimate test, a day of accounting, a day of assessing the master and the slaves. The kingdom of heaven is like this. There will be a time when you will be responsible to the one who has entrusted you assets that belong to him. This is a test all men will take. Now, a parenthetical. This test does not secure salvation. This is not a salvation test. Pass this test, you get salvation, eternal life. That is not the purpose of this test. This purpose, the purpose of this test is not securing salvation, but the validation of your salvation. It's the evidence of your status. This validates what's true of you. If you're internally, spiritually prepared, you will pass this test. The ultimate test validates the reality of who you are and how you've lived in light of who you are. It's a two-part test, I believe. Part A, the lordship test. Part B, the stewardship test. You pass part A, you'll pass part B. You don't pass part A, you will not pass part B. 
Let me break it down for you this way. It's a progressive test. And I want you to look, first of all, at part A of this test, the lordship test. All persons who pass the ultimate test rightly recognize who the master is and who they are. They humbly recognize who he is and they act like it. They humbly recognize who they are and they act like it. Look at verse 14. This part of the test has to do with recognizing his identity and yours. The kingdom of heaven, the coming of the kingdom, it's just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Identity test, lordship test, knowing who he is and who all kingdom citizens are. Number one, who is the man in the parable? The man in the parable is the king of the kingdom, who Luke's gospel, parallel passage, different time this parable was told, but same context. Luke 19, verse 2 Luke reports Jesus saying, A nobleman who went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. The man in this parable, Luke 25, is the master who is the nobleman who will return having received a kingdom given to him. He temporarily leaves and he assumes leadership coronated as the king of a kingdom. Here's a parallel passage. You would want to note it. This bears reference to this reality. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Because you know Jesus is leaving. A nobleman is leaving. He is going to receive his kingdom. Hebrews chapter chapter 2 says, For a little while the Son of Man was made lower than the angels, his incarnation. Then he'll be crowned with glory and honor, his elevation, ascension, and coronation. Psalm 2, God says, I have installed my king. That's a coronation event of the ascended Christ who, because of his obedience, not only his incarnation, his crucifixion, elevated in resurrection, he is given a coronation of a kingdom from God to him, which will be his forever, and then he'll give that back to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15. But listen to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel the prophet rehearses a vision related to that nobleman going to receive a kingdom. Daniel seven thirteen. I saw, said Daniel, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, remember Acts Chapter 1, Jesus ascended in the clouds. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Who would that be? God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, God the Son, the nobleman receiving his kingdom, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Understanding Matthew 25 is understanding that the man is the nobleman, who is the king ascended, who will be coronated king of everything, elevated to the highest place, having dominion over everything. That's the man. The identity is king of kings, lord of lords, matchless authority, coronated king who is going to return having received his kingdom. Identity part two, the slaves. The slaves are all professed citizens of the kingdom. Everyone who considers themselves citizens of the kingdom of heaven are represented in this parable by the slaves. Douloi, from the, from the word doulos, slave. Now here, some of your Bibles will say bondservant. My Bible says slave. Comes from deo, to bind or to be bound. Some translations say bondservant because this is a person who is bound to the master. Unfortunately, sometimes, coming from the Old Testament, particularly Exodus 21, you have bondservants who are bound by debt for a season of time until the year of release. They work off their indebtedness and they go free. Or they like their arrangement and so they have a, an instrument driven through their ear and they choose voluntarily to be a servant for life. This is not that. This is... Doulos, douloi. This is a servant forever, not temporary and not voluntary. Biblically, at that time, slaves, of which two thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves, slaves were considered property. They and all they had belonged to the master, even their life belonged to him. By way of law, they, had, they were absolutely under the authority of the master, even their life. Listen to this statement of that season. Whatever a master does to a slave undeservedly, in anger, willingly or unwillingly, in forgetfulness after careful thought, knowing or unknowingly, that is judgment, that is justice, that is law. Because the master's authority over the slave, listen to this, was absolute. The slave was the property of the master, and everything that the slave possessed belonged to who? The master. All kingdom citizens, according to this parable, are slaves. Slaves of the king of kings, who has been coronated, yet to return. They are slaves by virtue of creation. Number one, they belong to him even if they don't know him because they were made by him. Listen to Colossians 1.16 of Christ and the word who is the image of God. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and of the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. John 1, 3, all things came into being by him, a reference to the living word, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
by creation, everything belongs to the master who created them. That's why Romans 9 says, what can, can the clay pot say something to the potter? Can they object? No, they can't object because the maker has authority over the thing made. The thing made belongs to the maker. Psalm 50, verse 10, listen to God. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine, and all it contains. Why? I made it. That's why the celebration of praise in Revelation 4.11 says that Jesus Christ, God, is worthy of glory, honor, authority, and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of your will they existed and created. Now, it's important by way of the ultimate test to recognize identity. The Lordship test says, I know who he is, the king of everything, and I know who I am, the property, the created one, made by him. I belong to him, and everything I have belongs to him by creation. And then if you have been saved by him, purchased by him, ransomed by him, You are his by redemption. You are not your own, Paul says. You've been bought with a price. Peter says, a price that's immeasurable, the precious blood of Christ. This test and the passing of it begins getting ready for it and acting like it begins with recognizing who he is and who you are, who we are. We are His. All that we have belongs to Him. All that we are belongs to Him. We own nothing, including our life. Now listen, in a parallel passage, Luke 19, the citizens say, we're not going to have this man rule over us. They reject his identity, and they reject an assumption of their identity. Grace Church of the Valley, every believer, every notable believer understood Jesus is the master and they are his slaves. Let me remind you of some blatant and obvious statements from the New Testament. Listen to this, Romans 1.1, this is the Apostle Paul, dear friends in Rome, This letter is from Paul, Jesus Christ's slave. Titus 1.1, he declares it again. Paul, the slave of God and messenger of Jesus Christ. James 1.1, the head of the church at Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James 1.1 writes... From James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1. From Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1. A slave of Jesus Christ, referring to himself, and the brother of James. Turn over to Revelation 1.1. The apostle John. 
Just watch these words. The last book of the Bible begins and ends with the recognition that those who belong to Jesus Christ by creation and by new birth are his slaves. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show to his, now my Bible says bondservants, its slaves, his douloi, his absolute purchased, owned, and controlled by this master, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must shortly come to pass, he sent God and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John. The book of the Revelation is written by a slave, John, to slaves. It's written to kingdom citizens, possessions of the master, their life and all they have. Turn over to the end of the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. And while you're turning, listen to 1 Corinthians 7. As Paul writes regarding all Christians, if the Lord calls you and you are a slave, that's literally a slave. You actually are the possession of another human being. Remember that Christ has set you free from the awful power of sin. And if he has called you, you are free from sin, not from that relationship. And remember that you are now a slave of Christ. You've been bought and paid for by Christ, so you belong to him. So if you're a slave, literally, know this, you're free from your sin. But also know, slave or free, you belong to Christ because he bought you. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. You're a slave. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, is a reference to the New Jerusalem, the capital of the, capital of the royal kingdom. It comes down from heaven, verse 23, chapter 21. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is illumined in it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall come into it, Now watch verse 27, the end. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only people in the capital city of the royal kingdom are those whose names, citizens of the kingdom, names written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who have been purchased by grace through faith. Those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Those who have been saved, purchased, redeemed. The new city, the capital, the doors are never closed. The lights are never out. The king, the kingdom, and the citizens of the kingdom. That's the context. Verse 3, chapter 22. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants, his slaves, literally, shall serve him. So you have slaves in the new city. Verse 4. And they shall see his face. 
and his name shall be on their forehead, which is to say they are branded identifying with the king, the one on the throne, the lamb. Verse 5, and they shall no longer be any night, there shall not be any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now look up for a minute. Let me tell you what he just said. Every citizen of the kingdom is a slave. Every citizen of the kingdom bears the brand mark identifying them with the king and the kingdom. And every slave of the kingdom is not only a servant forever of the king, but they reign with the king. Every notable in the New Testament recognized, I'm a slave, he's the master. The last book of the Bible begins, written by a slave, to slaves. It ends recognizing that all kingdom citizens who will reign forever, whose names are written in the book of life, are what? Slaves. If Paul was a slave, if James was a slave, if John was a slave, if Jude was a slave, if Peter was a slave, Harry's a slave. And will forever be possessed for the purposes of bringing glory and good to the king of everything. Identity test says, I belong to him and everything I have is his. Now listen, you may be thinking, well, then what about John fifteen fifteen, where Jesus says to the disciples, you are my friends. I no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from the Father. I've made known unto you. Harry, harmonize that for me. Here's how I would harmonize it. Relationally, you are now a friend. Relationally, you are a son, but functionally, you'll forever be a slave. Relationally, you will be those who forever enjoy the love and the affection of our loving father and the friendship of our firstborn brother. There is a relational transformation that comes to those who are disciples of Christ, but there is a functional connection to what we will always be, which is we will forever serve our rightful master, our sovereign king, and the assets he gives to us both now and eternity are for him, for his glory, and for his honor. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. To pass the ultimate test, there needs to be a recognition of who I am and who he is. Now, I served in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. That is a city that endures a lot of weight with, relate to, with relation to slavery. But I'm going to argue that the kind of slavery that was practiced humanly does not look like the possessing leadership of the master who we serve. Our master is a different kind of a master. He is not abusive. He is not hard. He's not exacting, as this one servant said. He is a generous master. He shares his authority, and he rewards generously. He is fair, just, and trusting. There is no son of God who does not recognize this. So here's the first question, maybe a part A quiz question. 
as it relates to your preparation for the ultimate test. Ask yourself this, in my life, who works for who? How much of what I have belongs to me? Who is the master in my life? Who controls how I live, what I do, and how I invest what I have? Am I responsible for my agenda or his agenda? Now let's back up. I'm coming. You don't know when. The fig will be obviously in the future, near term. The fig tree is budding. But you don't know when. Be ready. Be spiritually, internally ready and be practically outwardly ready by working and recognizing who I am and who you are. Listen, there's a lot of lip service in the kingdom of God today. Many of you say, Jesus would say, you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them. Those are the ones who belong to me. True Christianity recognizes who he is, who we are, and acts like it. Now, number two, and finally, the second part of the test, of the ultimate test, and it is grounded in part one. If you don't get who he is and who you are, I'm going to argue there's no chance you'll finish part two. The second test you must take and pass, I call the stewardship test. This has to do with activity, not identity. This is recognizing your function in the kingdom. This is recognizing, verse 14, that you're the entrusted recipient of assets that belong to the master for the purposes of the master. Look back at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves, now watch these words, and entrusted his own possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Verse 19, and after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Literally, how did you do with what I entrusted to you? Part two of this test recognizes that I have been entrusted. By the way, the word entrusted is is a special and a sweet word. Entrusted is didomi to give, para, up close. It's entrusted personally. If this is my iPhone in it, I have my credit cards and my debit cards and everything that's valuable and even a few dollars of cash just in case I need money where somebody doesn't take plastic. This is representative of all I have and access to all I have. Paradidomy entrusted is me going, Dom, this is all I have. And I want you to take care of it. I'll be back next year if Scott invites me. And, and this is what I have. Will you take care of it and will you invest it for me? Entrust it. It's when Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, you remember he looked to John, his disciple, and he said, John, there's my mother. She's 
I want you to take her into your household. I'm entrusting her to you. I want you to understand something. The king of everything has personally entrusted his assets to you. Personally, now listen to this word, and uniquely. Verse 15 says, each according to his ability. What I've been entrusted is not the same as what you've been entrusted. You've been given different assets based on the master's perception of you. You're responsible for your assets. Some have been given a lot of gifts, a lot of abilities, a lot of talents, a lot of capacities. You don't have to worry about what they've been given. You need to worry about what you've been given. And the stewardship test is recognizing that the one who made me, And for the Christian, the one who redeemed me has personally entrusted assets to me, uniquely to me. I need to assess those assets. I need to invest those assets because there's an accounting for that gift and trust. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So I want to give you three things to do in terms of application today as you think about the ultimate test. Number one, recognize that the master has given you something special, something personal, entrusted to you to care for and to invest. Luke's gospel says, do business with this. Use this. Ingressive heiress, do it now. Don't delay. Middle voice, do it, invest it for your own benefit, for my glory. It'll serve me and it'll bless you. Three things to do. Number one, I'm going to call asset assessment. This passage says God gives to every kingdom servant, Jesus gives to every kingdom servant talents. That's a weight or measure. Capacities. Someone has defined talents as that are to be understood as gifts or endowments, anything conferred by God, spiritual or physical, mind, abilities, natural and acquired, health, strength, long life, understanding, judgment, memory, learning, knowledge, eloquence, influence, authority over others, wealth, privileges, offices, civil or religious, indeed every power and every advantage of which a good or bad use may be made. God gives you abilities. He gives you assets, capacities. They are His entrusted to you. Ask yourself, what has God given to me to use? Naturally? Practically? Let me give you some things to think about. I'm going to give you some T's in terms of asset assessment. Because the second question is, How am I investing these assets, asset investment? The test is, do I know what I've been given? Secondly, how am I investing what I've been given? Number one, you've been given the temple of your body. Your body, how are you caring for and using your body for the master? You are not your own, Paul writes. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. My body, your body, belongs to Him. How are you stewarding this asset? Are you using it for purposes that honor Him? And are you taking care 
as if you only get one. I played high school sports, college sports, and I'm 59 years old, about to be 60, and there are things I wouldn't have done then if I'd have known how I would feel now. And all God's people said amen who are about this age. Too many miles on these knees. I would have stewarded differently if I'd have known the future. Ask yourself, how am I taking care of me in a way that maximizes his purposes in me and for me? Number two, in the, with regard to the term talent. I want to use the word talent not in that broadest sense, but in this way. Your skills, your gifts, your capacities. How are you using the natural gifts God has given you? And how are you using, if you're a Christian, the supernatural spiritual gifts that God has given you? Do you have an ability? Do you have a capacity? Are you using that for His glory? Do you have a place and a station and an opportunity of influence? How are you using your capacities, your abilities? Number three, how are you using your time? That's a stewardship. That's why Ephesians chapter 5 says, Paul writing, Wake up, sleeper! And what does he mean by that? Wake up to the priority of today. Wake, sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you and blessing you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. They need to be impacted. So then don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, indulging the flesh and self, be filled with the Spirit, live for God and empowered by God. Use your time wisely. Here's a fourth T, training. Some of you have been given the gift of training. Some of you have been trained. You've been trained in finance. You've been trained in law. You've been trained in medicine. There's a dentist in the area that was on our, is on our board who travels the world periodically using his training as a dentist as investment ac- access to people for the glory of God and the gospel. Your training. How are you using what you've been trained to do for the glory of God? Number five, treasure. Another T. Your money and stuff. Listen, this is sobering. We spend more money in 52 days on dog food than we do on global missions. We spend more on chewing gum annually than we give to the global good of the gospel. 16 out of 38 parables were about money and the handling of possessions. One out of every 10 verses is on the stewardship of assets. There are 500 verses on prayer, 500 on faith, and 2,000 in the New Testament on possessions and money. Money matters because money belongs to Him and is to be invested for Him. Number six, the final T to think about in asset assessment and investment is the truth. The truth of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in... 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy rather, chapter 1, 13 through 14. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 
Now, contextually, that's the truth. It's the word of God. It's the word of the gospel entrusted to you as treasure. Guard it and leverage it. Grace Church of the Valley, you know truth other people need to know. You know the gospel. You know the truth that every man is a sinner. There's none that doeth good, not a one. God created everything for good and His glory. Man was doomed by choice and by evil. God sent a rescuer, Jesus Christ the Son. Jesus died on a cross as a substitute to pay for one man men cannot pay for. And God offers it through Christ as a free gift, forgiveness and salvation. That's a gift you can earn. Salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, like every other religion says. You know the truth that the gospel alone saves. There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ. Guess who doesn't know that? The people you work with, the neighbors you live near, there are people you go to school with, play sports with, farm with, invest your life with. They don't know the truth you know. You're a steward of that truth. You're a steward of that truth. You've been given truth like treasure. Use it. Invest it. Share it. I want to close with this story few years ago, became vividly clear to me how important this stewardship is to my master. I was traveling to California, living at Birmingham at that time. I served on the board of the college and seminary. I was designated to preach on, in chapel at Masters on Monday, flying out of Birmingham, connecting in Houston. There was a long delay getting on the plane in my connection in Houston, Houston to L.A. I'm standing in line, and I did what I normally do. I just look and watch and pay attention to the people around me. And just a few folks ahead of me was a couple and a guy and a gal, and they obviously enjoyed being together. Not inappropriately, they just had an obvious affection for one another. I watched, and I enjoyed the amount of affection they were displaying toward each other, noted it, finally got on the plane, sat in my seat, aisle seat 14C, three seats on each side. My secretary did what I love for her to do, get me an aisle seat. I don't like the middle seat, that's death. The window seat's bigger, but you can't get out if you need to get out. I had 14C on the aisle I noticed, though, that she, the girl of the guy and the girl couple, she turned into the aisle that I was seated in, and she sat in the middle, D-E-F. She's in 14E. What was interesting is the guy that was enjoying her fellowship didn't sit in that row. He headed to the back of the plane. I saw it, and I went, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe they're not together. Maybe they met in Houston. And then I heard her ask the guy on the aisle across from me, hey, would you trade with my husband so we could ride together to Los Angeles? He said, yes. And as he started to stand, he said, by the way, does he have an aisle seat? She said, no, he has a middle seat. To which he plopped down and said, no, I won't trade. Now, anybody who flies knows the middle seat is smaller and it's dreaded. He didn't want to fly in the middle seat. 
She saw it. She was disappointed, but she turned to the person at the window and said, will you trade with my husband so we could ride together? He had heard that the middle seat was the option to which he said, no, I won't trade. I saw it. I heard it. I watched her frustration because of it. And then the next thing I know, she was getting up and leaving, and the guy came back and sat in her seat. Harry's interpretation, she don't want to sit sit next to two guys that hard-hearted. I'm not going to ride with you guys. So now husband is in the middle seat, 14E. I noticed, I watched, I got out my Bible preparing to study, and I heard these words as if someone were having a conversation with me. You can fix this. What do you mean I can fix this? Now, I don't normally talk to myself. But it was as if someone were talking to me. You can fix this. What do you mean I can fix this? You can trade with the guy on the aisle opposite. Surely he'll trade with you. And then you can trade with her so she can ride with her husband. I can fix this. But I don't want to fix this. I don't want to sit in the middle. It's only two and a half hours from Houston to Los Angeles. I need to study. It's no big deal. They'll be back together. And then it was as if somebody said to me, you won't do this for me? Well, I heard it as if somebody said it. I heard it as if somebody said it to the point where I was determined, yes, if it's you, I'll do it. Nobody wants a disobedient preacher preaching in chapel on Monday. So I leaned over to the guy across from me and said, hey, will you trade seats with me? He looked at me funny. I said, no, I'm going to trade with you if you'll trade with me so I can trade with her so they can ride together. He said, of course I'll trade. So he traded, and before I got to sit in his seat, her husband, who had seen the transaction, looked at me like, what in the world are you doing? I said, uh, he's he said, I'm going to trade with your wife. He said, okay, I'll get up and get her. I said, no, I'll get her. Just tell me what her name is and where she's at. She's in 18B. So I walked back to 18B. I looked at her, and I said, Annette. She looked up like, well, you got to be kidding. How do you know me? I said, Annette, I'm trading seats with you so you can ride with your husband. Now, listen, she got up with excitement. Her eyes got big. She hugged me in the aisle out of gratitude, which I thought, that's okay, no big deal. And then she went and sat down, and I sat in 18B. I texted Karen, my wife, and I said, honey, if this plane goes down, I'm in 18B, not 14C, and I put a smiley face. God moved me. Now listen, I'm not always spiritually sensitive, obviously, but I am by 18B. In 18B, I'm beginning to think, you know what? I'm on a mission. Somebody in this row needs the gospel. I have my spiritual sensors turned on. I look to the left, and there's a gal, about 20-something. She gets out a book. It's how to be a praying wife. It's not her. So I look to the right. The college student to my right put on his Beats headphones, put a pillow against the window, and began to sleep. And we're not even flying. Ah, it's not him. Maybe this is about me. Just being obedient. The happy couple caught my eye. 
No problem. Happy for you. I'm happy. You're happy. We're taxiing. There's movement to my left up at row 14. Happy husband's looking back. And I'm thinking, dude, it's really okay. I thought he was doing this, but he wasn't doing this. He's doing this. Happy husband is pointing to 15C, the seat behind the row where I started. This is a full airplane with one empty seat on the aisle. The guy in the miniature middle seat hadn't moved. Nobody doesn't move if they can. So I saw there was an empty seat. Happy husband's helping me see this empty seat, but I'm, I'm locked in until the plane gets to a certain altitude. So I'm now praying apprehensively, maybe, maybe God's going to reward me with an aisle seat after all. The seatbelt buzzer goes off. 15 C's empty. I grab my stuff. I head to 15C, I plop into 15C, happy couple greets me, I sit down, and I'm going, wow, isn't this interesting? Maybe this is the couple that needs to hear the gospel, but I want to leverage my good deed. I'm going to look for the open door. There's two and a half hours, and I'm going to wait. Two hours go by, happy couple talks, they never look at me again. One half hour out of LAX. The guy next to me who's been reading the whole time leans over and says, can I borrow your Bible? I looked over and I said, sure, what do you, what do you want to know? He said, and, he, and I saw the book he's reading, Tacitus, a Roman historian. Now, I've read Tacitus, but nobody reads Tacitus. I said, what are you reading this for? Quote, I'm wanting to see if Jesus is a historical, real person. And I'd like to borrow your Bible so I can see history and the reality of Jesus in the Bible. I'm seeking Jesus. You know what? I think I can help you with that. My name's Harry. He introduced himself as Cameron. I said, Cameron... The Jesus you are seeking is seeking you. He ping-ponged me from 14C to 18B to 15C. Because I know the Jesus you're seeking. I know the truth of the Bible. And I shared everything I knew with a creative producer for an adult television show, a cartoon family guy. This guy lived in... Orange County, and he had two children, and he's starting to go to church, and he's trying to find out if Jesus is real. I knew the truth he didn't know. I shared everything I knew. We exchanged numbers and connection. We shook hands as we landed at LAX. He thanked me. I told him how grateful I was if there's any way that I could help him in his pursuit of this. Walking down the concourse of LAX. Anybody have an idea how this preacher felt that day? Not because I sat in an aisle seat. But because the master used a slave to seek another slave for his glory. And I'm walking out of the concourse down to baggage claim. And I'm just enjoying almost floating on air. 
And then the ladies in front of me who had been in 14 with me, who I put their concrete blocks up into the carry luggage area where they couldn't raise them. And I, one of those ladies turned around to me as we're walking out of LAX and said, thank you. And I said, no, no problem. I'm happy to get your bags up there. And I was happy to take them down. She said, no, I'm not talking about my bag. I'm talking about thank you for sharing the gospel with that guy next to you. I said, you were listening? She said, I listened to the whole thing. And I was praying the whole way. I said, you're a Christian? She said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, you live in Los Angeles? She said, yeah. I said, you must be the only other Christian in Los Angeles. (laughs) Traveling back from Houston, watching my son in a professional golf tournament. I was praying for you. Thank you. I said, you know what? We share a seeking Savior. Every seat is sovereign. Every cubicle is important. Every neighbor matters. God cares about seeking people for his glory. You are a steward. Whether you have five talents, two talents, and if you're the person with one and you bury it and you don't use it, he failed the identity test. You're a hard, exacting man. You don't deserve my work for your return. Jesus called him a worthless, lazy slave. And that one failed the test because he failed the lordship's test, the stewardship test, and his outcome was eternal loss. The ultimate test. Are you ready? Are you stewarding what God has given you for his glory? We're about to take the Lord's Supper in closing of this service. This is a time of saying, am I rightly related to him? And part of that question is, Who is he? Who am I? And how am I doing with what he's entrusted? May God use that for his glory.